cue sappy music. Hey there, Fighting for the Faith podcast listener. Just want to remind you at the top of the program here that Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. You know, no, the music isn't working. Kill the music. Yeah, sorry, I see other guys use sappy music. I, uh, bad idea. Remind me to talk to you after the program. Anyway, just want to remind you, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you, your generous gifts, financial contributions to keep bringing this program to you. If you don't support us financially already, visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com. Click on one of the friendly yellow buttons. Fill it all out. You know what to do. Or if you would like to do the traditional thing, you can make your check payable to Fighting for the Faith. Send that to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. Okay, now you can play your music. Yeah. Enjoy listening to the program. I enjoyed making it. I hope you enjoy listening to it. Here we go. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith, Tuesday, August 27th, 2013. Yeah, this will be a slightly different format than you may be used to. If you're a long-time listener, details forthwith. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Rosebrew. I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which, help you think biblically, help you think critically, and help you compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. There is no shortage of crazy things being said out there, and we take the time to open up our Bibles and read them in context so that we properly understand what God's Word says Despite what um, popular pastors, preachers, uh, authors, and conference speakers are saying about God's Word as they twist it and not pay attention to actually what it says. Now, today's episode of Fighting for the Faith, um, I must warn you, it is politically incorrect. Um, That being the case, that has never scared me away from doing a topic And uh, you'll notice in the podcast, the name of today's episode, when the podcast is posted, is entitled uh, The uh, uh, Purpose-Driven Parallels uh, Between the Religion of the Pharisee, something to that effect, you know. And uh, whenever you say Pharisee and purpose-driven in one thing, people are going to say, oh, you're playing the Pharisee card. Now, listen, yeah, I, I know it might appear like I'm playing the Pharisee card. However... It's one thing to, quote, play the Pharisee card. It's another thing to make a valid parallel between the false religion of the Pharisees and what many people are doing in the purpose-driven religion. I don't consider it Christianity. It's something different. And uh, we'll be taking a listen to a couple of things today, two things. And what I ask that you do, never listen to Fighting for the Faith with an open mind. Nope, that's not how you listen to Fighting for the Faith. You listen to Fighting for the Faith with an open mind. 
Bible. Okay, that's the idea. So we're going to do two segments today, um, and we're, we're going to skip our normal sermon review. Okay, so it will, a little bit of a slightly different format today, which means today's program will be a little shorter, which will allow some of the people who are behind to catch up. Um, and uh, let's just put it this way. We do a lot of radio every week, and uh, sometimes I like to mix it up and uh, you know, for purposes of teaching. And uh, a while, for a while now, I've been kind of threatening to, uh, to play a, a recent uh, teaching that I've given, really delving into what is behind the religion of the Pharisees in Jesus' day. What's the beef? Now, if you think the beef has to do with the fact, oh, these guys just added a whole bunch of, uh, of commandments uh, to the uh, biblical commandments, uh, you don't quite get what's going on. And so what I'm going to be doing is I'm going to be playing a recent lecture that I delivered at my church where I serve at, a Sunday school lesson that I presented to the entire uh, congregation. Since I teach the uh, high school and uh, college kids out there at uh, the church that I serve at, um, you know, this was an occasion for me to teach you know everybody, so that you'll hear the kids in the audience. Um, and so, uh, but this particular lecture is keying in on a, a close look at the Gospel of Mark, chapter seven, and uh, with a historical note to a proper understanding of the religion of the Pharisees their presuppositions, how they operated, what was their authority, and things like that. Because when you know the historical background uh, of the religion of the Pharisees, and then you read a text like Mark chapter 7, all of a sudden you can really understand what Jesus was getting at and what he, you know, and why there was this cataclysmic collision between uh, Christ and the Pharisees. And then after that, so you're going to learn about what uh, Nehemiah Gordon calls the uh, five iniquities of the Pharisees. And uh, once we've, you know, I've played that lecture, you know, in its entirety, there will be a break partway through it. Then what we'll do is we will do a purpose-driven update uh, with Rick Warren. It's been a while since we've done a Rick Warren update. And the the reason I want to put these two together is because I want you to be able in your mind to sharply and clearly see what is so dangerous about someone like Rick Warren. The danger lies in his irrational twisting of God's word and his absolutely conscienceless ability to mangle the word of God and make it say all kinds of things that it doesn't say. And so we'll be listening to a segment, a recent radio segment uh, from uh, Rick Warren's Daily Hope radio program, which is you know going all over the place now, and chronicle what Rick Warren does with Scripture. And when, I, when we do that, you will then see the parallel between Rick Warren's mangling of Scripture and what the Pharisees historically did with the Scriptures as well. Now, it's not going to talk, you know, I'm not going to key in on their focus on the law as opposed to the gospel. That's not the template that we're looking at. We're going to look at the common ground that Rick Warren shares with the Pharisees, and it's it's not the same ground that you would intuitively think that it is. In fact, it's something different. Um, And this is based upon the fact that just a lot of people don't know 
how the religion of the Pharisees really operated. Okay, in order to understand that, you have to understand Orthodox Judaism, which is the modern day manifestation of the the religion of the Pharisees. And once you get that, then you'll see you'll see the common ground. Anyway, I think I've said enough. You know, it, in fact, I've probably confused you in the uh, intro to uh, my lecture. So without any further ado, here's me uh, giving a lecture on the five iniquities of the Pharisees. And like I said, once I'm finished with this lecture, uh, then we'll take, uh, we'll, well, actually, there'll be a break in the middle of it. Then we'll do a purpose-driven update, and you'll see the connection. It'll The lights will go on. Uh, you know, the exclamation point will stand right over your head. And you go, oh, wow, okay, never saw that before. At least, at least that's the aha moment that we're looking for. So, again, here's my lecture on the five iniquities of the Pharisees. Here we go. Today we're in Mark chapter 7, and I've bitten off more than I can chew. We're going to take a quick look at all 23 verses of the opening part of Mark chapter 7. And I'm going to ask you to do your best to follow along because I'm not going to be teaching from your translation. I'm going to be actually working from my own. And so there will be differences, but I feel it's necessary because it'll help us understand what's going on in this text. So let's take a look at it first. We'll read it, and then we will, I will back up and we'll walk through this and take a look at the broader historical context of what's going on here. Here's what it says. And the Pharisees gathered to him, this is to Jesus, and some of the scribes came from Jerusalem. And seeing some of his disciples eating bread with common hands, that means unwashed, for the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands, holding to the traditions of the elders. And from the marketplace, if they do not wash, they do not eat. Many other traditions they hold to washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and even couches. And the Pharisees and the scribes inquired of him, that's Jesus, why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with common hands? But he said to them, well did Isaiah prophesy concerning you hypocrites, as it is written, that this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far distant from me. Vainly do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men, and releasing the commandments of God, grasping the traditions of men. Well do you reject the commands of God in order to establish the traditions of men. For Moses said, Honor your father and your mother, and those who curse father and mother must die the death. But you say that if a man says to father or mother, whatever benefit you might have had from me is korban, that is, it is now a gift given to God, you no longer permit him to do anything to help his father or mother, thus nullifying the word of God by your tradition which you have handed down, and many similar things you do. Again, calling the crowd to himself, he said to them, Hear me all and understand. Nothing that is outside of a man entering into him has the power to defile him, but those things coming out of man are what defile the man. And when he had entered into the house from the crowd, his disciples asked him about the parable. And he says to them, Thus you are without understanding? Do you not understand that all that is outside entering into man is not able to defile him? That it does not enter into his heart, but into his stomach and into the latrine coming out of him, making clean all food. But he said that out of man proceeds that which defiles man. For out of the heart of men proceed evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, and murder." Adultery, greediness, maliciousness, deceit, treachery, licentiousness, self-abandonment, 
the evil eye, which is jealousy, slander, arrogance, and foolishness, all of these proceed from within, and they are what defile the man. Now, today's sermon today, Pastor gave us a great exegetical sermon on the story of the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. Now, what a lot of people don't understand is what is really behind the Pharisee's religion. And I think it's important for us to understand that. Oftentimes, people understand the result of their way of thinking, but don't understand exactly how they think. And what I mean by that is, is that oftentimes, when you get a basic understanding of what the Pharisees were about, somebody will say, well, the, the, the Torah, the law of God in the Old Testament, gives 600 and something commandments that we're supposed to obey. But the Pharisees came along and they gave us a whole bunch more. And the basic premise behind it is if you were to think of it this way, if you were to go to a great museum, maybe like the Louvre or something like that, and you wanted to see some of the great paintings, some of them you can actually walk up to. Others, well, there's a yellow line. Or there's, they're behind glass. There's a, some kind of a partition. So the basic idea that we, most people have of the Pharisees is that their laws create a boundary that if you keep their commandments, that you're not going to break the other commandments. Now, although this is true, it doesn't actually explain to us what is at the heart of their religion. And I think it's important for us to get this because when we see how they think so that they came to these conclusions, we will begin to see what Jesus is getting at kind of in vivid color. Rather than black and white, we'll begin to see some of the nuances here that are very important for us, especially as Lutherans, because you're going to see some um, parallels to other people that are similar to the Pharisees. Now, let me give you some examples of some of the laws that the Pharisees added. Okay, when you read the Talmuds, it's very interesting to see the rabbinic back-and-forth dialogues regarding the different laws and commands, especially when it pertains to the Sabbath. For instance, okay, what can you not do or do on the Sabbath? This was an obsession with the Pharisees. Well, an example, you can't work on the Sabbath, so... The Pharisees came up with a commandment, a, a law, that said that if you live in a house with a dirt floor, you cannot push your chair away from the table. Why? Because the, the, the legs on the chair, as you're pushing it back, would create furrows in the dust, therefore you were plowing. <laughs> okay? Seems kind of silly, right? Then you look at the rabbinic you know, back and forth on these things. And then you come, to, you, know, you come to another law that says you cannot spit on a plant on the Sabbath. Why can you not spit on a plant on the Sabbath? Because then you'd be watering it, and watering plants is work. So make sure on the Sabbath that if you're going to spit, spit on the rocks. And then always the, the, the major theological conundrum, which is always so fun to read about, is what are you to do if on Friday night around sunset you have an apple in your hand and you put your hand outside of the window of your home and the sun goes down. Well, once the sun goes down, it's now the Sabbath. Can you bring your arm in? Because if you bring your arm in, you're delivering produce on the Sabbath. <laughs> But if you drop the apple, you're planting an apple tree. What are you to do? (laughs) 
Now, we kind of laugh at all of this, and we say, this is, this is tyranny. It's actually kind of sad and silly to read about. But I think it's important that we stop for a second and take a look back at this passage and see what's going on. And we're going to have some vocab words today. I, I like giving vocab, and I like giving it in the original languages and telling you what it means because, well, I've been to space camp. <laughs> Let's go back and take a look. The Pharisees gathered to him, to Jesus, and some of the scribes came from Jerusalem. So let's get the setup here in Mark chapter 7. And that is, is that some of the highest mucky mucks, the synodical leaders, came from St. Louis to check on the teaching of Jesus. They were hearing things about the miracles that he was performing, and they came to check to see if Jesus' teaching was kosher. Was it on the level, right? So this, this is very important. They're there to either say, yes, Jesus, or no, Jesus, right? And it's fascinating because what happens is, is that they pick an interesting fight. And the fight that they pick is not small, it's huge. And when you understand why it's huge, it begins, you begin to have these aha moments with the scripture. So, and seeing some of his disciples eating bread with common hands, that is, that they are unwashed, for the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands, holding to the traditions of the elders. Now, it's important to note here, this is not your mother saying to you, cleanliness is next to godliness. Don't you dare sit down at the table until those dirty hands of yours are clean. It's not what's being talked about here. Okay? Instead, there is a Pharisaical tradition which exists to this day. And here's how the ceremony goes. When you've been out among the goyim, among the unwashed masses, and unwashed means unclean, unclean has to do with purity before God. When you come into your home, you have a little water basin as well as a little water pitcher. The ceremony goes like this. You take your left hand face down over the water basin, pick up the pitcher, pour a certain amount of water on it. You then sprinkle your hand, switch hands, right hand down, pour water on your right hand. Then you repeat, open left hand, switch, open right hand, and then you pray. I thank you, Lord God, maker of heaven and earth, that you have given me the commandment to wash my hands. That's it. That's all you got to do. So, it's dinner time. They've been out among the goyim. And Jesus' disciples skip the little water basin and go right to the table. Hey, pass the chicken wing, would you? You know? And they start eating. And the Pharisees go, Aah! Okay? And the reason they go, Aah! is because there's something really important in play here. Now, question. Where can I go in the Old Testament to find the commandment to wash my hands before I eat? No. <laughs> Good one, though. <laughs> no, it's not in the fourth commandment, but man, so close. <laughs> The answer is it's not there. The answer is it's not there. Now, in order to understand what's going on here, I need to, to rely on the work of a man who is a former 
Orthodox Jew whose father was an Orthodox rabbi. And what you need to understand is that the Pharisaical religion exists to this day. The Pharisees were the last men standing after the temple fell in Jerusalem. They were the last ones standing and they reworked Judaism and created an entire religion that is basically based upon their teachings. In fact, in Orthodox Judaism today, it is very important. You know, we talk about um, apostolic succession, if you would. It's important that your ordination be from... This is what the Roman Catholics say. It's important that you're ordained by somebody who was ordained by somebody whose ordination was by somebody who you can trace all the way back to one of the apostles, right? Well, it's funny. In Orthodox Judaism, they have the same exact concept. Okay, so I'll be relying on the work of a gentleman by the name of Nehemiah Gordon, who is a Karaite Jew. Karaite, you can roughly translate that or as scripture-only Jew. Okay, so there's different versions of, of Judaism, but he grew up in Orthodox Judaism. In Orthodox Judaism, a rabbi has to be ordained by a rabbi who's been ordained by a rabbi who's been ordained by a rabbi who goes back to the Pharisees. Nehemiah describes these five things that we're going to talk about as the five iniquities of the Pharisees, which I think is rather inflammatory, so I think I'll keep using that term. <laughs> Iniquity number one, there are two Torahs. According to the Pharisees' religion, there are not, there's not one Torah, there's two. Torah number one is what's written down in the Tanakh. That would be the Old Testament. Okay, specifically in the five first books of the Old Testament, which is called the Torah. But according to the Pharisees, there is a second Torah. That second Torah was given orally. So there's a written Torah, and there's an oral Torah. And in their tradition, they teach that the reason why Yahweh, the Lord, gave a second Torah verbally is so that the Goyim, the Gentiles, wouldn't be able to, know, to hear it, know it. It's to be secret from them. Now, it's since been written down, okay? And you can find this in the uh, Jerusalem Babylonian Talmuds. So it's now been written down. You can actually read it. But back in Jesus' day, there's not one Torah, there's two Torahs. And it's important that you get this. Now, this should sound familiar to us Lutherans. The reason this should sound familiar to us Lutherans is because when we were broken off of Roman Catholicism, and we were saying, Scripture, 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 Scripture alone, right? What was it that the Roman Catholics at the time of the Reformation said? Oh, Scripture is not sufficient. Don't you understand we've received orally from the apostles an, a, another tradition which then gives us the right to introduce these other doctrines? The doctrines of prayers to saints, prayers to Mary, and uh, indulgences, and, uh, and purgatory, and all this kind of stuff. Luther called... That oral tradition, supposedly the oral apostolic tradition, he referred to it as the magic bag. It's a great, it's a great term, the magic bag. So that if a doctrine isn't taught in Scripture, and yet the, the Roman Catholic Church is saying, you must do this, they would say, oh, it's in the oral tradition. Let's pull into the magic bag. See, in the magic bag, we have this. So you got to obey it, right? The Pharisees were much the same way. Now, second iniquity of the Pharisees. The absolute authority of the rabbis to interpret scripture. And I do mean absolute authority. 
in their religion, the only people who had the authority to interpret Scripture were the rabbis. In fact, there's a fascinating story in the Babylonian Talmud regarding Rabbi Eliezer, who's one of the greatest rabbinical sages and teachers of the legendary Rabbi Akiva. And here's the idea. The absolute authority to interpret the scriptures rests with the rabbis, not even with God. And I'll get to that in a second. And in the rabbinic collection, if you would, you know, when they get together, the rabbis get together, majority rules. Okay, And so there's this story in the Babylonian Talmud of Rabbi Eliezer who wanted to put forward an argument from the written Torah contradicting something that the rabbis were saying in the college. And he became very frustrated because he couldn't convince the other rabbis in this meeting that he was right. He couldn't convince them. And it was very frustrating to him because he knew that the written Torah was on his side. And he knew that logic and reason was on his side. And yet, his fellow rabbis would not listen to him. And so, in frustration, he invoked a miracle. And he shouted out, If I am right, let the trees prove it. And all the rabbis in the academy suddenly heard a great rumble. And when they looked outside, they saw an entire orchard of trees inexplicably being uprooted and flying into the air. The rabbis were very impressed. And they turned to Rabbi Eliezer and they said, We do not listen to trees. So Rabbi, Rabbi Eliezer, he tried again. He shouted out, If I am right, let the river prove it. And everyone in the academy ran outside and witnessed as the great river began to flow backwards. Now, the rabbis were extremely impressed, but they turned to Rabbi Eliezer and said, we do not listen to rivers. Now, Rabbi Eliezer was by now steaming at the collar and he shouted, if I am right, let the walls of the academy prove it. And the walls of the academy immediately began to cave in. The rabbis turned to Rabbi Eliezer and said, we do not listen to walls. Rabbi Eliezer was at his wit's end, and finally he shouted out, If the law agrees with me, let it be proved from heaven. And at that moment, all of those present in the academy heard a voice call out from heaven saying, Why do you dispute with Rabbi Eliezer? Now the rabbis were again very impressed, but they turned to Rabbi Eliezer and said, Sorry, we do not listen to heaven. This is in the Babylonian Talmud. And it's there to reinforce the idea that the rabbis have the absolute authority to interpret the scripture. And where do they claim to have gotten this authority from? Well, if you have your Bible, flip on over to Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 12. Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 12. This is where the rabbis claim that they have the absolute authority to interpret Scripture. Now, I'm going to read it the way the rabbis do. Here's what they say. Deuteronomy 30, verse 12 says, The Torah, the law, is not in heaven. So there. It's not in heaven. Well, if the Torah is not in heaven, who has the absolute authority to interpret it? Only the rabbis, not even God. You're going, uh, what? 
Okay, let's take a look at that passage in context real quick. I'm going to back up a little bit. Verse 11. For this commandment that I command you today is not too hard for you, either is it far off. It is not in heaven that you should say who will ascend into heaven for us and bring it to us that we may hear it and do it. Neither is it beyond the sea that you should say who will go over the sea for us and bring it to us that we may hear it and do it. But the word, it is very near you. It is in your mouth and in your heart so that you can do it. Now, what's the whole point of this passage? It's talking about the fact that the Torah is doable, right? This is what God is saying. But they take the words, it's not in heaven. They lift it out of context and make that into the pretext for because the Torah is not in heaven, it's on earth. Therefore, we, the rabbis, are the ones who have absolute authority to interpret God's word. Now start to think about these categories then as we're looking at this conflict between Jesus and the Pharisees. Right? They claim to have not just one Torah, but two, the oral. And they are claiming that they have the absolute authority to tell you what Scripture says, and not even God, not even God can tell them otherwise. This is part and parcel of their way of thinking. You're saying... Man, this sounds a lot like Roman Catholicism. Isn't the Pope the vicar of Christ and he's the only one who has the authority to interpret Scripture? You seeing a pattern? You should be. All right, we're going to pause my lecture right there and pay some bills. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. You can follow me on Twitter, my name there, at pirate Christian. Quick break when we come back, the balance of this lecture, and then how this ties in to Rick Warren. Yeah, stay tuned. Don't want to miss it. We will be right back. Unless your righteousness surpasses that of Rick Warren, you cannot be saved. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs> presents Church Day Select. Siri, what are the chances of hearing Rick Warren actually rightly handle and correctly teach God's Word? That will take some serious number crunching in order to figure out. I'm not a cray supercomputer. I'm just an iPhone. Are you sure you want me to calculate that? Yes, I'd like you to try to calculate that. Okay, I'll give it my best shot. Calculating. 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 
Ouch, my processor chip hurts. Calculating. Calculating. Okay, I think I've got the answer. Here you go. There is a better chance that Harold Camping will predict the end of the world and there is of you hearing the Bible rightly taught by Rick Warren. Purchased your airline tickets for your summer getaway yet? If not, don't pay more for your airfare, hotel room, or rental car than you need to. Long-time Pirate Christian Radio featured advertiser Cheapo Air is your one-stop shop for all of your travel needs. And we've got a special promo code for you to use at Cheapo Air to save an additional $10 off of Cheapo Air's already low prices. So visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. Write down the promo code, then click on the web banner and book your travel today. And remember, a portion of your purchase will go to support Pirate Christian Radio. That website address, again, is piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. And thank you for your support. Cowabunga. Hello, I'm Brandon House of WorldviewRadio.com. WorldviewRadio.com is the world's premier biblical worldview online radio network. And now you can take it with you on the go with our free app that you can download free of charge at WorldviewWeekend.com forward slash APP. That's WorldviewWeekend.com forward slash APP. And you'll hear the daily and weekly radio programs by people like T.A. McMahon of The Brian Call, Chris Rosebro of Fighting for the Faith, Usama Dakdok and The Truth About Islam, Noise of Thunder with Chris Pinto, Justin Peters and the Justin Peters Program, Crosstalk, Dr. Jimmy DeYoung and Prophecy Today, Jesse Johnson with the Bible Teaching Program of Emmanuel, Dr. John Whitcomb, and Mike Gendron of Proclaiming the Gospel Radio, as well as Carl Tycrib with Forcing Change Radio. All of these biblically-based radio programs are available free of charge at worldviewradio.com and through our free app at worldviewweekend.com forward slash app. Biblical Worldview Radio that you can take with you on the go. No, 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 no. All right, we're back. Warning, if you think Rick Warren is a guy who rightly handles God's word, then this program is going to be a rude awakening for you. Just a reminder, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you into the world. And you can partner with us by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see our two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate, the other says join our crew. When you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute $6.95 every month to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio, and it's a great way to support us. Of course, if you'd like to specify the amount that you would like 
like to contribute, you could do so by clicking on the donate button, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith, and then send it to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. And let me thank you, thank you, thank you for your support. We truly cannot continue to bring this important radio outreach to you and to the world without it. All right, we continue. Here's the balance of my lecture on the five iniquities of the Pharisees. Here we go. So let's go back to the iniquities of the Pharisees. Now, what they did there with the scripture in Deuteronomy 30 then leads to iniquity number three, and it's an irrational interpretation. Now, not that you would ever do this, but hypothetically pretend as a parent you have to run an errand and for whatever reason you're working on a great dessert that you're preparing for your family and your son or daughter or children are out of the house and you know they're going to come back while you're gone and you've left out the dessert to cool or to whatever right and so you leave the note and you say to your children do not eat the dessert love mom now Upon returning to your home, you find your children sitting at the dinner table, chowing down on the dessert. And you say to your children, what are you doing? My note said, do not eat the dessert. And your very brightest says to you, ah, ah, the note says, eat the dessert. They just left out the word don't. You see, the note does say, eat the dessert. And you can get that interpretation of the note if you just ignore the context in the other words, right? Because, I mean, in the note, it does say, eat the dessert. But after the word don't. Now, the Pharisees were notorious for this type of irrational way of reading the scripture. And these are the kinds of word games that you see going on when you read the Talmuds. So you get, I'll give you an example of this. Exodus chapter 23, verse 2. Remember we talked about in the Pharisaical religion, in the rabbi's academy, that the majority rules, right? Majority rules. Well, where did they get that from? Well, they get that from Exodus chapter 23, verse 2. And in that verse, you will see this phrase, incline after the majority. That's part of the phrase that's in there, right? Incline after the majority. So therefore, they say, see, Exodus 23, 2 says incline after the majority. When you combine that with Deuteronomy 30 that says the Torah is not in heaven, so we have absolute authority. And Exodus 23, verse 2 says incline after the majority. There you go. That's how we're to operate. And you're going, wait a second. Listen to this. Let me read this verse in its entirety. You shall not go after the majority to do evil. Neither shall you testify in a matter of strife to incline after the majority to pervert justice. They're making minced meat of the word of God. Engaging in word games in order to Teach doctrines. Now, I'll come back to this in a minute because there's examples of this that abound all over the place. In fact, let's, let's talk about a recent example that I covered on my website. Not too long ago, Rick Warren of Saddleback Church, author of The Purpose Driven Life, published an article 
at the Christian Post entitled, Learn to Laugh. Learn to Laugh. And see if you can catch the problem here. Now, what I would like you to do in preparation for being in the right place here, please open your Bible to Psalm chapter 2. You will need it. I'm going to read a little bit of what's going on here. Rick Warren says, Did you know that people who laugh live longer? It's true. Proverbs 14.30 says, A relaxed attitude lengthens a man's life. Humor is an amazing thing. It's a tension dissolver. It's an antidote to anxiety. It's just like a tranquilizer, but without any of the troublesome side effects. It's free. You don't even need a prescription. Laughter is like life's shock absorber. If you want to have less stress in your life, learn to laugh at your circumstances. Somehow, you must find the fun in the frustrating. Someone once asked President Lincoln how he handled all the stress of the Civil War. He said, if it hadn't been for laughter, I could not have made it. Many famous comedians grew up in poor neighborhoods with lots of problems. They coped with their troubles by learning how to laugh and to make others laugh. So learn to laugh. If you can laugh at it, you can live with it. And besides, if you learn to laugh at your troubles, you'll never run out of anything to laugh at. Life is full of funny situations. Will Rogers once said, I don't know any jokes. I just watch the government and report the facts. We all need to develop a sense of humor. One of my favorite verses in the Bible is Psalm chapter 2, verse 4. The one enthroned in the heavens laughs. Isn't that great? Isn't that a great verse? God has a sense of humor. God laughs. Have you ever seen the face of an orangutan? God thought that one up. That proves that God has a sense of humor. Do you want to be more like God? You need to learn how to laugh and have a sense of humor that, uh, that can preserve your sanity. Let's take a look at Psalm chapter, Psalm 2, verse 4. Okay, remember, here's how Rick Warren quoted. One of my favorite verses in the Bible is Psalm 2, verse 4. The one enthroned of the heavens laughs. Isn't that a great verse? God has a sense of humor. Let me pull this up in my Bible really quick. And let's take a look at God's sense of humor. (laughs) I will put it in context. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. He will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. Is this passage telling us that we need to have a sense of humor? Like God does? Because this is the kind of laughter that goes, Ha, 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 <laughs> Right? Yeah. Now, in honor of Rick Warren's um, ideas here, a few years ago, I, w- I wrote what I call the Blazing Saddles Bible Study. Yeah, it's, it's my contribution to church growth by, uh, Bible studies. So here's what you do. Step one, you have a small group of uh, participants read Rick Warren's article entitled Learn to Laugh. Uh, and then just read this excerpt from Rick, Pastor Rick's article out loud. The one, one of my favorite verses in the Bible is Psalm 2 verse 4. The one in throne of the heavens laughed. Isn't that a great verse? God has a sense of humor. God laughs. Do you want to be more like God? You need to learn how to laugh. Now ask each member of the group what Psalm 2, verse 4 means to them. 
Now note, read the passage for them. Do not allow them to read the passage for themselves in their own Bibles. Otherwise, they might get confused by all the other negative language in the surrounding verses. Only focus on the words, the one enthroned in the heavens laughs. Ha 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 ha. Now, be sure to reinforce and affirm any participant who feels like this verse is telling them to loosen up and to not take life so seriously. Now, step two. Have small group participants watch the campfire bean scene from the movie Blazing Saddles and then discuss the questions below. Um, the Bible says to make a joyful noise unto the, Lord, the God of Jacob in Psalm 81 verse 1. Did you feel any joy while laughing at this bean scene? Do you feel that Psalm 81 verse 1 could be referring to the noises that you heard in that video clip? Why or why not? Now, that's a tongue-in-cheek mocking reaction to a very serious problem. And that is, is that so many people today who call themselves Christians do this to God's word. They twist it into a pretzel. And oftentimes it happens in small group Bible studies where they read a passage and then go around the, ver- the room and share with each other what that verse means to them. This is no way to handle God's word. And this is exactly how the Pharisees handled it. Now, two more things we need to take a look at as far as the iniquity of the Pharisees so that you understand what's going on. Traditions of men that rise to commandments. So number four has to do with the traditions of men. Now, the Hebrew word we're going to focus on here is takanot. Okay, this is the Hebrew plural for enactments or reforms. And so the question comes back, where did the Pharisees get this idea that God has commanded them to wash their hands? Answer, it comes from these enactments, the takanot, otherwise known as the tradition of the elders. And where this comes from is the idea that in their, in the pharisaical way of thinking, since they're the sole authority on interpreting the Torah, there's not one, there's two, and um, they have an irrational way of twisting scripture, then what happens is in their community... When something is done for a long period of time within the community, a tradition, it rises to the level of an actual commandment from God, a mitzvot, or, or mitzvah would be the, uh, the singular, a mitzvot would be the plural. Okay, does that make sense? So your question that you have, you know, for instance, Jews today, they wear a kippah. You know, the, the you know, Jewish men wear a kippah. The question is, where did that come from? Well, it's not found in the written Torah. In the Middle Ages, in the Jewish community in different parts of Europe, there were men who did that for an extended period of time, and after a while, it rose to the level that that tradition then became a commandment. So four and five, traditions of men that become commandments, supposedly from God. So remember the little washing ceremony. We thank you, Lord God, maker of heaven and earth, that you have given us the commandment to wash our hands. But God has not given the commandment to wash the hands. So why are they saying that God has commanded them to wash their hands? Simple. Because there was a tradition, a tapanah, that became a mitzvah over a period of time. Got it? Now, let's go back to the text. Verse 2. Seeing some of his disciples eating bread with common hands, that is unwashed, for the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands, holding to the takanot of the elders. The Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands, holding to the tradition of the elders. Now, here's where the fight really is. 
The Pharisees saw that Jesus' disciples were not following one of the Takanah, one of the traditions of the elders. And they understood rightly. If Jesus could just wipe away one of the Takanah, then the authority of all of them comes into question. This is not a small battle. This is a cataclysmic collision. To dismiss one of the Takanah is to dismiss their authority to be the sole interpreters of the word of God. To dismiss the Takanah is to completely deny the authority of the oral Torah. So what's at stake here for the Pharisees? Answer, everything. Everything here is at stake. This isn't just about a commandment of men. This is about the entire system that created that commandment. Seeing some of his disciples eating bread with common hands that is unwashed, for the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands, holding to the tradition of the elders. And from the marketplace, if they do not wash, they do not eat. And many other takanot, they hold the washing of cups, pots, and copper vessels. So this, this here is the real word that's going on here. Got it? So they hold to all of these other traditions of the elders, these takanot, which include the washings of cups, pots, copper vessels. Nowhere in the scripture does it mention any of these things, right? And the Pharisees and the scribes inquired of Jesus, Why do your disciples not walk according to the traditions of the elder, but eat bread with common hands? What's at stake? Everything. This isn't just about washing hands. So he said to them, Now here comes the real punch. Well did Isaiah prophesy concerning you, hypocrites, as it is written that this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far distant from me. Vainly do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the mitzvot, the commandments of men. Now this is an interesting thing. Verse 8. So teaching as doctrines the commandments of men, releasing the commandments of God, grasping the taka note, the enactments, the traditions of man. Now, this is an interesting thing. The reason why I translate this way, this way is because afantes, the uh, Greek word that's in play here, means to release. And so the idea behind this is, is that, think of it this way. Jesus is picturing faith in a way that it has one hand. It has one hand. Faith will either cling and grasp onto the word of God, or it will release the word of God, and it will cling to the traditions and teachings of men. It can't do both. It's impossible. That's kind of the picture that's, that's here in the Greek. So releasing the commands of God, grasping onto the traditions of man. And here, now he gets real nasty. Well, do you reject the commands of God in order to establish the takanot, the traditions of men? Jesus is having none of this. Jesus rightly understood that this was the battle to have. You're either going to trust the written word of God or these traditions of men that fly under the name of the oral Torah, right? 
For Moses said, honor your father and mother, and the one who curses father and mother must die the death. Okay, so where's that? Written Torah. But you say, notice he didn't say, but God says in the oral Torah. He says, but you say. So now Jesus calls him to question the entire oral Torah. He doesn't say, and then God said on Mount Sinai in the oral Torah that you, you know, that if a man says to father and mother, whatever benefit you might have had from me is to be korban, that is a gift to God. Where do, they, where do the Pharisees get this, this idea from? Answer, from the oral Torah, the second one. Jesus literally says here, that's not Yahweh speaking, that's you. You no longer permit him to do anything for father and mother, therefore nullifying the word of God by your takanot, your traditions, which you have handed down, and many similar things you do. This isn't just about some extra commandments tacked onto the law. This is about an entire system designed to supplant and nullify the written word of God and piously claim allegiance to the one true God while instilling systematically doctrines that do not have their origin in the mind of God or the written word of God, but in the minds of men. That's what this passage is about. And you better bet your bippy this is happening today. Happening all over the place. In churches that call themselves Christian, they nullify the word of God and establish the doctrines of men. All right, that was my lecture on the five iniquities of the Pharisees and how it helps us understand Mark chapter 7. Now, when we come back from this break, we've got a purpose-driven update, and you will see clearly the connection between how the Pharisees handled God's word and how Rick Warren handles, or should I say mishandles, God's word. Stay tuned. Don't want to miss it. We will be right back. Living a life of purpose can't save you. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. Pirate Christian Radio Theater presents Death of a Salesman. Are ye a salesman? Why, yes, I am. Can I interest you in some... You're listening to Byron Christian Radio. Have you purchased your airline tickets for your summer getaway yet? If not, don't pay more for your airfare, hotel room, or rental car than you need to. Long-time Pirate Christian Radio featured advertiser Cheapo Air is your one-stop shop for all of your travel needs. And 
we've got a special promo code for you to use at Cheapo Air to save an additional $10 off of Cheapo Air's already low prices. So visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, write down the promo code, then click on the web banner and book your travel today. And remember, a portion of your purchase will go to support Pirate Christian Radio. That website address, again, is piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. And thank you for your support. Cowabunga. Oh, hey, I didn't hear you come in. What was I just doing, you might ask? Well, I just conquered the outer rim planet of Pico Pond with my trusty double-barreled nuclear plasma cannon. Well, I just did in this video game. But how is it possible for someone like myself to play 13 hours straight and not get a headache? It's quite simple, really. It's because I wear gunners. When I'm rocking these babies, I'm unstoppable. They're not limited to just games, mind you. Oh, no! I rock the spreadsheet, the PowerPoint, the word processor, and when that's all done, I hop my T-16 and fry me some toasters. If you want to get in on the action, then head over to piratechristianradio.com forward slash gunners. You gotta see it to believe it. Okay, welcome back to Fighting for the Faith. This is hour number two, and we're not doing a sermon review, a normal one. We have a purpose-driven update instead. I want, with what you've just heard fresh in your mind, to take a listen to a typical Rick Warren sermon and what he does with the scripture. When you compare the two, you'll go, aha, I get it. All right, now since we're doing a purpose-driven update, it requires me to do this. Purpose, it keeps you going strong, like a car with a full tank of gas. Everyone else has a purpose, so what's mine? Oh look, here's a penny. It's from the year I was born. Sing along if you know it. know how I know, but I'm gonna find my purpose. I don't know where I'm gonna look, but I'm gonna gonna find my purpose. Gotta find out, don't wanna wait, got to make sure that my life will be great. Gotta find my purpose before it's too late. Yeah, there we go. I gotta find my purpose before it's... (laughs) Too late. Okay, so uh, Rick Warren has a new, it's not exactly new, 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 but new this year radio program. And the name of the program is uh, Daily Hope with Rick Warren. Should be renamed Daily Bible Twisting with Rick Warren. That's what it really should be named. And what we're going to be listening to is a segment from a uh, his presentation called Shaped to Make a Difference, Employing... Your 
experience, employing your experience. So, you know, in the purpose-driven theology, employing your experience is mucho importante. Uh, The problem is that this entire teaching is based on nothing but twisting God's word and irrationally interpreting it, employing the third iniquity, if you would, of the Pharisees and how they mishandle God's word. Remember, you know, they pay no attention to context. You know, they, so it says in Scripture that the Torah is not in heaven. Therefore, we have the sole authority to interpret the Scriptures. Right? It says, "Incline not to the uh, incline to the majority." That means majority rules when it comes to us deciding what the Scripture means. Right? And you go and look at you know, those passage up those passages up in context, and they're not saying any of the things the Pharisees say they were saying. Well, it's weird. Rick Warren employs the exact same mm, irrational twisting of God's word to make it say things it doesn't say. So here's Rick Warren explaining to us the importance of employing our experiences uh, complete with biblical passages supposedly supporting this particular um, teaching of Rick Warren. Here we go. You know, I like chocolate chip cookies. In fact, I like them a lot. I like them so much, I know how to make them. In fact, I don't even need a recipe. I've made them. I know how to make chocolate chips. And the amazing thing is I get in a little hurry sometimes, and I want to eat the individual ingredients, and they taste like turtle spit. Somehow, though, when you mix five bad things with one good thing and you stir them up together, it is so good you eat half the dough before you make the cookie. (laughs) How is that? Five bad things and one good equal a really good mixture. And that's what God wants to do with your life. He wants to take bad, 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 good and turn you into Mrs. Fields. Okay, so apparently God wants to take all these bad, bad, bad experiences, add one good ingredient, and turn you into a chocolate chip cookie. That's kind of the metaphor. Remember, this the uh, the name of this particular sermon is is uh, at least as on the radio program, shaped to make a difference. Employing your experiences, and he's a pro at it. And today we're going to look at how he does it. God does not want you to waste your experiences. So how do I keep from wasting the experiences that I've had in my life up to this point? Now, what does it mean to waste your experiences? Where in Scripture is this important Christian doctrine about not wasting your experiences? I don't even know what... uh, How do you waste uh, an experience? How do you capitalize on an experience so that you don't waste it? I, I... Kind of at a loss here. Three things. Number one, first, you must embrace your experiences. Okay, so number one, if you don't want to waste your experiences, you you got to embrace it first. You must embrace them. I don't know what that means. You must embrace the experiences of your life. The good ones, the bad ones, the shameful ones, the right ones, the wrong ones, the happy and the sad ones, all of them. You've got to stop running from your past. Mm-hmm. If God's going to use it for good in your life. So God's going to use my past experiences for good if I stop running from them. I, I don't even know what this means. 
Galatians chapter 3, verse 4 says this. Now listen to what he does with this biblical text. Galatians chapter 3, verse 4, I think is what he said. Let me back this up just a smidge. Open your Bible. Let's take a look at this together. Listen to what he says. Use it for good in your life. Galatians chapter 3, verse 4 says this. You have experienced many things. Were all those experiences wasted? I hope not. And as your pastor, I say... Okay, okay. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Slow down there, Tex. Okay, so Galatians chapter 3, verse 4. You have um, experienced many things. What translation is he reading from? Okay, let me read it to you from the ESV, which is a perfectly great translation. Um, And here's what it says. Oh, foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. So let me ask you this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham and the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed, so then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. Now, if you're not familiar with the the epistle to the Galatians, this is a, a harshly, and I mean strongly, harshly worded letter to the churches in Galatia because they were believing a false gospel. They were believing that they were saved in part by their keeping of the Torah. You know, the Judaizers had come in after Paul left and told them, listen, you're not saved. You're not really a Christian unless you get circumcised, unless you follow the um, Jewish festivals and feasts. And here, Paul goes right back to salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, by Christ's work alone. And Galatians chapter 3 is not at all about employing your experiences or not wasting your experiences. This is about whether or not they receive the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, by works of the law or whether they receive the Spirit by believing with faith the message that was preached to them. So when we get to verse 4, did you suffer so many things in vain if indeed it was in vain? That's from the ESV, and I think that's the far superior of a translation uh, to uh, what's going on there in the Greek text. I don't know what translation he's reading from, but let me read it from a different translation just to kind of make the point. The NIV says this, Have you suffered so much for nothing if it really was for nothing? Okay, that's the e- the NIV, the 1984 edition. The old NASB from 1977 says this, Did you suffer so many things in vain if indeed it was in vain? You, you notice that what's going on here. I mean, let's take a look at what the KJV says. Have ye suffered so many things in vain if if it be yet in vain? Yeah, weird. So Galatians chapter 3 has nothing to do with employing your 
um, experiences and embracing them. This is, so Galatians 3 has nothing to do with embracing your experiences at all. So what is Rick Warren doing? Well, this is the third iniquity of the Pharisees, irrationally mishandling the word of God to make it say things that it doesn't say at all. Let me back this up now, and we'll listen to it in context, uh, and listen to what Rick Warren does with this Galatians passage. All of them, you've got to stop running from your past if God's going to use it for good in your life. Galatians chapter 3 verse 4 says this, you have experienced many things. Were all those experiences wasted? I hope not. And as your pastor, I say to you, I hope not too. Don't run away from your past. The problem is because of... You see what he did with Galatians chapter 3 verse 4? This is not an isolated incident with Rick Warren. This is exactly the state stable of food that he lays out before people calling this biblical preaching and teaching he is not a safe teacher in fact he's a liar that's not what this text is teaching at all galatians chapter 3 has nothing to do with embracing your experiences and he goes and finds some weird off bizarre translation in order to find the word experience to plug it into his message and his doctrine and his theology. In other words, Rick Warren is teaching as doctrines the commands of men. Okay, what's the command of the man, Rick Warren? You got to embrace your experiences. How does he come up with this man-made doctrine? Well, he twists the word of God to make it say something it doesn't say at all. That's how he came up with this. But it, here's a command from God. Embrace your experiences. Where do we get that from? Well, from some bizarre translation of um, Galatians chapter 3, verse 4, about did you experience these things for nothing? Well, I hope not. You know, completely ripped from context, not paying attention to anything that it actually says. This is how Rick Warren operates. And he'll do it again. And then when he's done doing that, he's going to do it again. Listen in. The pain, many people deny their past, ignore their past, discount their past, regret their past, resent the past. Shoot, they revise their past and rewrite their past. And they make up little stories that aren't really the way it was because they're happier with their story than the pain of the past. God says, if you're in denial, you can't. You can't use it for good, and I can't. Okay, did you hear who he said says that? Listen again, okay? Let me back this up. Listen to who he says says if you're in denial, he can't use your past. Listen to this. Pain of the past. God says if you're in denial, you can't, you can't use it for good, and I can't use it for good in your life. Where does God say if you're in denial about your past and don't embrace your past experiences, God can't use it for good? There isn't a passage in Scripture that where God says any of that. This is not what God's Word says. Rick Warren is making stuff up and putting it in the mouth of God and doing so by twisting God's Word. He's teaching as doctrines the commandments, the note. Of men. Would you write this on your outline? God can use every experience in my life for good. Every experience 
The relational, the educational, the spiritual, the vocational, the painful, all of them. The ones you like and the ones you didn't like, he can use them all. But you got to stop running from him. You have to embrace your experiences. So first step, you've got to, Allah, embrace your experiences. Nowhere in scripture are you commanded to embrace your experiences. Especially Galatians chapter 3 verse 4. And maybe your parents weren't that great, or maybe you weren't that hot in school, or maybe you weren't the football captain or the prom queen. Well, so what? They're your experiences. Own them, and God will use them for good in your life. Now, in order to use them, you've got to remember them. Okay, so now we've got to remember our experiences. So command number one, embrace your experiences. Command number two, Remember your experiences. And which passage from the Bible teaches this? Stop pushing them out of your mind. You've got to remember them. And Jesus tells us this. And in fact, in the Old Testament tells it too. In Deuteronomy 11 verse 2. Okay, let's take a look at Deuteronomy 11 verse 2 before he ever gets there. Deuteronomy 11 verse 2. And we'll look at this in context. Is this passage saying make sure to remember your experiences, okay? Um, let's, In fact, let's go to the tail end of 10 and add a little context. Remember, our three rules for sound biblical exegesis are context, context, and context. So let's go to Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 12, and then we'll keep reading into 11 and see what's going on in this passage. Okay, and now, Israel... What does the Lord your God require of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all of his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to keep the commandments and statutes of Yahweh, which I am commanding you today for your good. Behold, to the Lord your God belong heaven and the heaven of heavens. The earth with all that is in it is his, yet the Lord set his heart in love on your fathers and chose their offspring after them, uh, you above all peoples, as you are this day. So circumcise therefore the foreskin of your heart and, and be no longer stubborn. For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, the awesome God, who is not partial and takes no bribe. He executes justice for the fatherless and the widow and loves the sojourner, giving him food and clothing. Love the sojourner, therefore, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. You shall fear the Lord your God. You shall serve him and hold fast to him, and by his name you shall swear. He is your praise. He is your God who has done for you these great and terrifying things that your eyes have seen. Your fathers went down to Egypt, 70 persons, and now the Lord your God has made you as numerous as the stars of heaven. Now pause there for a second. We're in the book of Deuteronomy. What's the context historically of what's going on? The children of Israel are just about ready to enter into the promised land. The 40 years that they were um, punished for their unbelief. Remember the story of the 12 spies who went to spy on Canaan and the 10 who gave a bad report and the children of Israel didn't believe. Well, God punished them 40 years, one year for each day that the spies were in Canaan, right? And all of the, every, every adult above the age of 20 
They died in the wilderness during that 40 years, and they were not going in. They did not go into the promised land. So now the children of Israel are literally on the border, uh, getting ready to cross the Jordan. And Deuteronomy is a retelling, a second telling of the law and a remembering of all that God had done for them. So Deuteronomy chapter 11, verse 1 then reads, You shall therefore love the Lord your God and keep his charge, his statutes, his rules, and his commandments always. And consider today, since I am not speaking to your children who have not known or seen it, consider the discipline of the Lord your God, his greatness, his mighty hand, and his outstretched arm, his signs and his deeds that he did in Egypt to Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, and to all his land, and what he did to the army of Egypt, to their horses and to their chariots, how he made the water of the Red Sea flow over them as they pursued after you, and how the Lord has destroyed them to this day, and what he did to you in the wilderness until you came to this place, and what he did at Dathan and Abiram, the sons of Eliab, the sons of Reuben, and how the earth opened its mouth and Swallowed them up with their households, their tents, and every living thing that followed them in the midst of all of Israel. For your eyes have seen all the great work of the Lord that he did. Now, notice this is a telling of Israel to recall all the wondrous things that he had done. And this is not a command to remember your experiences, this is a command for them to recount salvation history, the things that were then recorded in the written word of God. This is not a command saying, oh, and here's the principle, remember your experiences. No, it's to recall the wonders of what God did in setting Israel free out of captivity and slavery. And since we have been grafted into Israel, their history is our history. And that's all type and shadow pointing to the reality. And the reality is this. Each and every one of us was born dead in trespasses and sins and in slavery to sin, death, and the devil. And Christ has sprung us free by his cross. And he is bringing us into the promised kingdom of God. Okay, That's what's going on here. But there's no general command here, oh, to remember uh, your experiences. And to turn that into that is to twist God's word. So let me back this up and let's see what Rick Warren does with Deuteronomy 11, verse 2. Now, in order to use them, you've got to remember them. Stop pushing them out of your mind. You've got to remember them. And Jesus tells us this, and in fact, in the Old Testament tells it too. In Deuteronomy 11, verse 2, it says, Remember what you have learned about the Lord through your experiences with him. Uh, what translation says that? Deuteronomy 11, verse 2 says, And consider today, since I am not speaking to your children who have not known or seen it, consider the discipline of the Lord your God, his greatness, his mighty hand, and his outstretched arm. That's actually a very faithful rendering of what the Hebrew says there. Again, let me read from the NIV, Deuteronomy 11, verse 2 says, Remember today that your children were not the ones who saw and experienced the discipline of the Lord your God, his majesty, his mighty hand, and his outstretched arm. Um, So what Rick Warren is saying here, this is not what this text says, and it's not teaching what Rick Warren says it's teaching. Rick Warren is engaging in the third iniquity of the Pharisees. Let me back this up so that you can hear it again. Again, this is not some isolated incidents. This is Sunday after Sunday after Sunday, what Rick Warren does to the scriptures. 
remember them. And Jesus tells us this, and in fact, in the Old Testament tells it too. In Deuteronomy 11 verse 2, it says, Remember what you have learned about the Lord through your experiences with him. Now it says, remember what you have learned. It's saying the important thing is to remember the lessons. Remember the lessons. Now, how do you do that? Well, the best way to remember the lessons of your life, the experiences, is to keep a journal. Deuteronomy 11.2 is not telling us to keep a journal. What is he doing to God's word? What is he teaching these people? Now, I'm not talking about a diary. A diary is a list of what you did. Today, I went to the store and bought milk. whoop de doo A journal, which you don't necessarily write in every day. It's just every time you have an important lesson, you write that one down because you don't want to forget it. And you go, oh, boy, that was painful. I had to learn that one the hard way. I don't want to forget that. And you write down the lesson. He says, remember what you've learned about me. And you want to keep a journal. This is one of my journals. I've been keeping a journal off and on now for, well, since I was in college. Now, notice, because, number one, you must embrace your experiences, and number two, you must remember your experiences, the implication is, is if you're not keeping a journal of your experiences, because according to Rick Warren, Deuteronomy 11.2 says you've got to remember these things, um, and you're not journaling, you're probably sinning and not doing what God has commanded you to do. Yeah, that's exactly the implication of what is going on here. And I don't write in it every day or even every week. It's just when I get a lesson, I go, ooh, I don't want to forget that one. And I hear something, or I learn something, I write it down. And then I go back and reread it. Now, why do you want to keep a journal on your experiences and the lessons you learn from them in life? Because hindsight is always twenty twenty. You understand your life looking back, not looking forward. Isn't that true? It makes a whole lot more sense looking backwards. In fact, Jesus said it. Notice this next verse. Jesus replied, you do not realize now what I am doing, but later you will understand. Um, So when Jesus said, you do not realize now what I'm doing, but later you will understand, he was teaching us to remember our experiences. Is this what the Bible teaches? By the way, That verse that he's referencing is the Gospel of John, chapter 13, verse 7. Let's take a look at the context here and see if here, John, in John chapter 13, Jesus is telling us the importance of remembering our experiences. John chapter 13, verse 1. Now, it was just before the Passover feast. Jesus knew that the time had come for him to leave this world and go and to go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he now showed them the full extent of his love. The evening meal was being served, and the devil had already prompted Judas Iscariot, son of Simon, to betray Jesus. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power and that he had come from God and was returning to God. So he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, and wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. And he came to Simon Peter, who said to him, "'Lord, are you going to wash my feet?' Jesus replied, You do not realize now what I am doing, but later you will understand. 
No, said Peter, you shall never wash my feet. And Jesus answered, Unless I wash you, you have no part with me. Then Lord Simon Peter replied, Not just my feet, but my hands and my head as well. And Jesus answered, A person who has, who has had a bath needs only to wash his feet and his whole body is clean. So, <clears throat> there we go. Um, John 13, verse 7, you do not realize now what I'm doing, but later you will understand, is not, absolutely not, a passage that is teaching us to remember our experiences. Rick Warren, again, is is twisting God's word. This is three passages now that he's twisted. Galatians 3, verse 4, Deuteronomy 11, verse 2, and now... John chapter 13, verse 7. Let me back this up so that you can hear what's going on here. Again, this is the iniquity of the Pharisees, the third one. Looking forward, isn't that true? It makes a whole lot more sense looking backwards. In fact, Jesus said it. Notice this next verse. Jesus replied, you do not realize now what I am doing, but later you will understand. You almost never understand what God is doing in your life in the present. It is only looking back, you go, oh, now I see it. Now I see what God was doing. He was doing this. I didn't see it at the time. This passage isn't about us remembering our experiences. But I see it now. Joseph was a man who in the Bible, everything in his life went wrong for 40 years. It was downhill. Nothing went right, including being thrown in jail for a rape that he did not even do. He had run from the woman and she falsely accused him. Everything went wrong in this poor guy's life for the first 40 years. And yet later looking back when God had done a series of amazing things and raised him to second in command in Egypt and during a famine he saved Israel and Egypt from starving to death. And when he was confronted with the brothers who had traded him into slavery years earlier and told their dad, uh, you know, he just died, sorry. He said this, next verse, you intended to harm me, but God intended it for good. Yeah, that's what the passage says. But that passage, again, just like all the others, isn't teaching us the importance of remembering our experiences. Now, there are things in your life where people intended to hurt you, and they meant it. They meant to hurt you, and I'm sorry. And they intended it for bad, but God is greater than your problem and your pain, and his purpose is far bigger than either of those. And he means it for good. So first, you have to embrace your experiences. And so first, got to embrace your experiences, and none of the passages he quoted say that. Stop running from them, okay? Number two, you embrace, first you embrace the experiences. Second, you extract the lessons. Uh-huh. Remember and extract the lessons, and none of the passages that he cited say that. You pull the lessons out of the experience you've had. An unexamined experience is worthless. There are people who are 50 years old. They haven't lived 50 years. They've lived one year 50 times. And they're still making the same mistakes because they never stop and extract the lessons from what happened in this last year and what, how can I do it differently based on what I did this last year. So kind of the, if you don't do this, then you're going to be living um, Groundhog Day over and over again. And they never pull it out. Second Corinthians 13 verse 5 says this. I love this in the Amplified. Examine and test and evaluate 
your own selves to see whether you're holding to your faith. In other words, you've got to extract the lessons. Uh, yeah, Rick Warren here is pulling a fast one. And what I mean by that is 2 Corinthians 13, 5. doesn't matter what translation you read, whether it's the ESV, the NIV, the uh, NASB, the KJV, or whatever alphabet soup you might be studying from, it doesn't matter. The text itself does not say anything about remembering your experiences and extracting the lessons from it. He's completely twisting this passage. <clears throat> Let me just read it simply. 2 Corinthians 3, 5. Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. <clears throat> in the faith. It doesn't say examine your life experiences and extract the lessons from them. It says examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. The fact that Rick Warren is quoting the Amplified here. How many different translations has he used so far? I think four different Versus four different translations. And he says, and this is what the text says, examine yourself, see whether you're in the faith, test yourselves, or do you not realize this about yourselves that Jesus Christ is in you unless indeed you fail the test? This passage has nothing to do with life experiences and what you should or shouldn't be doing with them. Let me back this up just a smidge and listen to what Rick Warren does to this text. And then never pull it out. Second Corinthians 13 Verse 5 says this, I love this in the Amplified, examine and test and evaluate your own selves to see whether you're holding to your faith. In other words, you've got to extract the lessons. Do, not re, do you not realize by an ever-increasing experience that Jesus Christ is in you? Um, what is he talking about? Verse... <clears throat> Verse 5, 2 Corinthians, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves, or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail to meet the test. Rick Warren, what was he doing? Looking for the word experience so he can plug it in here and not pay attention to anything at all about what God's word really says. He is basically manipulating God's word to make it appear that it's teaching these things and it's not. These are not doctrines of God. These are the doctrines of the man Rick Warren and his clever, clever Bible twisting in, in, in such a postmodern way. Says, Haven't you figured out by now that you're never alone? That God is with you all the time? That no matter when you thought you were your most lonely, he was right there with you? Have you not figured out from your experience? This text doesn't say any of that. This is yet that Jesus is with you and in you if you've invited him into your life. If you haven't, you're not keeping a record of, of where your life's headed. <laughs> 2 Corinthians 13.5 has nothing to do with keeping a record of where you're headed in your life or anything of the sort. <clears throat> I think I've made the point. You get what I'm getting at here, right? This is exactly what Rick Warren does Sunday after Sunday after Sunday after Sunday. This is exactly what he did when he wrote the so-called purpose-driven life. He took God's word and twisted it into a pretzel. Third iniquity of the Pharisees style. He's teaching as doctrines the commands of the man, Rick Warren, not what God's word really says. And there are 
<clears throat> tens, if not hundreds of thousands of people who tune in to hear Rick Warren preaching and teaching. And when he's doing this, are they rightly understanding what God has revealed in his word? No. Are they being taught the truth? No, they're being taught lies. Are they being taught the doctrines of God? No, they're being taught the doctrines of men under the pretense that it's the doctrines of God based on completely ripping texts out of context and irrationally interpreting them to say things that they don't say at all. This is exactly why Rick Warren is a dangerous dangerous, dangerous man, because Jesus himself said that Satan is the one who was a liar, and when he lies, he speaks his native language. When a pastor gets up and without any pangs of conscience, conscience, you know, can just get up there and just start twisting God's word like this and not actually feel like he's doing anything wrong and can lie about God and his word so fluently... What he's proving is, is that he's not really a son of God, but that he is like his father, the devil, and he's a liar. This is why Rick Warren is so dangerous, and the whole purpose-driven movement that he's the kingpin of, uh, he's the mafia don of, um, well, they take after him, which means they're not really teaching the truth, they're not really proclaiming Christ, they're not really teaching sound doctrine, they're leading people astray and sending him to hell. And Christ speaks ever so vocally against this exact thing in Mark chapter 7. So what would you think? Love to get your feedback. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkbackatfightingforthefaith.com or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash piratechristian. Or you can follow me on Twitter, my name there, at Pirate Christian. Till tomorrow, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ and his vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen. <laughs>